just like that, we're back. It has been a minute. I get that. Uh, life has certainly, certainly done its best to get in the way over the past year, but you know what? We're going to make the best of it. And I've got about six episodes lined up here that we're going to, we're going to release that I've recorded over the past couple weeks, but, uh, we're going to kick it off tonight with an engine cast because a lot of the requests from the emails have been to talk about the engine. And in order to, in order to do this effectively, really you need visuals. And I get that. And in talking with uh, my good friend rain, who, who I guess he runs a podcast occasionally, uh, he says that video is, is the difference. So I'm promising you guys that this year we're going to start throwing up from the rest of uh, the recording podcasts, we're going to do it from a video standpoint and have a guy cut it and edit it and give you a little better quality rather than um, just playing it on. We'll still have it available on uh, Apple and Google and uh, uh, Buzz and uh, Buzzsprout, all the places that you traditionally get this podcast. But if you want to watch it on YouTube and you want to actually see what we're talking about, if we're actually having like an interactive podcast, then yeah, it'll be it'll be a little bit more visual. So. Um, some of our upcoming shows right now, as this is being recorded, it's uh, it's June of 23, and the remaining shows that I have on my schedule coming up is uh, Dayton with uh, Warbird Heritage Foundation's Corsair. I'll be doing the Legacy Flight with uh, Old Glenview Corsair, and then uh, the following week, we're rolling right into uh, EAA Air Venture at Oshkosh, which should be a fun time. Looks like we're doing uh, our solos Monday and Tuesday, and then... Uh, Legacy flight the rest of the week, and then Friday and Saturday is going to be class of 45. So should be a good time, uh, good time had by all. And then rolling into the fall, we're planning on doing Rochester and uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, Peace Air Force Base in, uh, New ha- in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, Orlando, and then finishing out the year, at, uh, of course, at Monroe, our, our all-time favorite show. So... Without further ado, what, what we're going to go over tonight is, since since there's two of these beauties opened up right here in front of me, uh, I'm just going to sit here and go through the overviews of the uh, Rolls-Royce design Packard-built Merlin that's in the Mustang, and then talk the, about the same components and specs and all that other kind of stuff that the uh, Pratt & Whitney R2800 engine that the Corsair has, because Korean War Hero lives here in South Carolina with... Uh, Quicksilver when it's not on the road, so what a better time to uh, go over these airplanes. We're in mid-season maintenance right now, so should be should be good times tonight. Starting with the Merlin, um, folks want to know specs and maintenance and all that stuff, so we're going to go over that tonight. First, just going over a little overview. I re- a lot of you have asked why don't I call it a Rolls Royce Merlin? Well, because the P-51 never had a Rolls-Royce, okay? They were always designed under license by Packard Motor Car Company. Uh, whenever they, quote-unquote, shoehorned one of these things into an airplane, it was actually done in a very controlled environment. It was used using one of the engines that was built under license by the Packard Motor Car Company. So they're built in Detroit. The facility is still there today. Uh, it's abandoned, and they're trying to turn it into a housing project, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Um during the war, they produced over 75,000 Packard Merlins, okay? That's just out of the Detroit plant alone. That's just for the Mustang. Keep in mind, there's 15,780-some-odd P-51s built. They also built the Packards for—they uh, actually f- retrofitted a lot of the Packards into the 
um, desert Spitfires, a lot of the Spitfire Mark Fives, uh, later Mark Nines, the, they called them Trops. They had some Packard Merlins in them, as well as the P40. The the F model P40 has has a, uh, a Packard Merlin in it. It has a Dash 3 Merlin in it. So, And we'll talk about the differences in the, in the dashes. So Rolls-Royce had Marks. So you'll hear like Rolls-Royce Merlin Mark 61 or a Mark 30 whatever. Packard decided to get rid of that and go to dash numbers since that's more of the American system. Now, the Merlin that's in most of the D model P51s to this day is a copy of the Mark 61. And they just redesignated it V1650 137 and 9. Those were those were the dash numbers. The dash 7 is what went in the P51D primarily. So 1650 goes with without saying is the cubic inches of the engine is 1650 cubic inch it's a 12 cylinder engine it is water cooled just like your car or your truck or your school bus or whatever the hell you're driving it is it has a radiator and a coolant or you guys call it in cars antifreeze system in it it's just a little bit a little bit bigger that's all it is um and as same with same with the uh p40s the p40s had with the the allison engine and with the with the merlin engine they had uh, radiators, and that's what's in those jowls. That's what's in that uh, that under scoop area of all those P40s. So um, the dash numbers correspond to generally changes in design in the, in the engine. Primarily, the big difference between the three and the seven was the supercharger. It wasn't really the the Bravo and Charlie model Mustangs. The B and C model Mustangs actually had a superior supercharger to the Ds, and you'll see a lot of the like Roush. They'll take uh, engines today, Dash 7 engines or Transport Merlins, and we'll get into those here in a second, but they'll take those and they'll put a Dash 3 blower on it because it's a little stronger, a little heftier blower. Um, the engine that we're running in Quicksilver is a straight Dash 7. There's no no mods. People put different heads and banks on them. Back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the Cat's Meow was a Dash 9 bottom end because it's a it's a heftier bottom end. The Dash, the Dash 9 Merlin bottom end is, is a little heftier, a little a little stronger than everything else. And then they'd put transport heads on the top of it. And the reason they put transport heads, that that went in like the uh, uh, Canadian-built DC-6s that had Merlins on them. And uh, just a heftier water jacket, a little stronger top end. Uh, the problem with it is if you don't fit those up just right, the oil galleys, because um, it's splash oil, meaning it's very, very low oil pressure that goes to the top of the uh, top of the engine. If you don't line those up right, you're not going to get proper coolant, uh, oil cooling, I should say, and or lubrication to the top end, which, you know, the, the cams on this on this engine run over top of each one of the uh, each one of the V sections, each one of the banks, as we call them. So um, six cylinders per side. The uh, in true British fashion, you had to put the A side on the right side and the B side on the right, left side. So if I say it's A side bank or B side bank, that's re- referring to either the right or the left. And then each cylinder is is labeled 1A, 2A, 3A. So those would be cylinders 1, 2, and 3 on the right side. And then B1, B2, B3, those are the 1, 2, and 3 cylinders on the left side. And all the way down to 6, right? So that would be a total of 12. So... With that having been said, the 1650 cubic inch Merlin was kicking out a stock Dash 7 was kicking out about 1,495 horsepower. That was that was right about the happy area, and that was plenty for the 51 with the laminar flow wing and the low cross low cross sectional area of the aircraft. 
that was really all the horsepower that for the time it, it, i mean you could always use more but that was that was a pretty good combination with uh swinging a four blade hamilton standard propeller uh laminar flow wing like i said low cross-sectional fuselage it was it that's why this airplane will just about out accelerate just about any uh world war ii airplane um on the allied side at least down low and, and up top but uh the fuel that we're running in it is 100 octane. It is Avgas, so it's rated at 100 octane. There's no knocking. There's no detonation. There's no pre-ignition. I take off in Quicksilver full power every opportunity I get. Sometimes I'll take off slightly reduced power if there's a uh, if there's a strong left crosswind because I want to have all available uh, left or excuse me right rudder to uh, to keep this thing straight. But uh, generally. I, I, I take off full power all the time because the engine is, is rated for it. The fuel is rated for it. Now, granted, back in the day, they had what was called 100-130, which means that the grade of it on the low side or the lean side was 100 octane, and on the high side was 130 octane. So you hear people say, oh, they had 130 octane back in the day. Folks, I'm here to tell you, the only time they ever had 130 octane was when they were testing it at the factory because they were pumping it out so much that it was diluted. Now, granted, the range can be between 100 and 130. It doesn't matter. It's still more than 100. But, you know, I still go to the full takeoff rated horsepower of 61 inches of manifold pressure on this just about every single time that uh, that I take off. With that having been said, in order to, in order to meter the fuel correctly into... Um, into each one of the cylinders, we need a we need a carburetor. So the carburetor on this airplane is a pressure carburetor. It's not like the float type carbs that you have on your Cessnas or your Pipers or any of that kind of stuff. The pressure carburetor is a whole different animal. What it does is it measures the amount of airflow coming into the carburetor and says, okay, well the force of the air coming in for the lack of words, and I'm dumbing it down. I know there's a lot of guys out there that that don't like this analogy, but the force of the air coming in means that I need X amount of fuel put into cylinders. And it, you can imagine that it's very easy to, to disrupt that. Well, because it is. And there's diaphragms in there that, that measure the pressure differential and essentially sends a signal to uh, uh, to the fuel delivery area to deliver the right amount of fuel into the first stage of the supercharger. Remember that the supercharger is a two-speed, two-stage supercharger. So the first stage, the low stage of the supercharger, is where the fuel is actually first introduced with the air. There is no air-fuel mixture in the actual carburetor, or I should say impact air. There's no impact air uh, mixture. So it's mixed in the in the um first stage of the supercharger it then goes to the second stage of the supercharger where it's compressed even more this fuel air mixture now granted there's not an ignition source so it's not going to blow up everybody's like well why doesn't it blow up well there's not really an ignition source i know you're compressing it and it's getting hot but it's still not enough because then it's going to go through an intercooler it cools it down there's another smaller heat exchange area in the back of the engine that that airflow then is cooled down from about 790 degrees to around uh, around 350 to 400 degrees, where it's then put into the cylinders and then ignited. So that's a basic overview of the fuel system. Now I oversimplified it just for the just for the lack of what we're talking about here, but um, that is how a pressure carburetor basically works. There is really one place in the entire country here in the U.S. that is overhauling and uh, and uh, redoing these carburetors and that's out in Tehachapi, California. It's vintage carburetors. And they do a pretty damn good job. I've I've been running this this carburetor that I have on it right now. I've been running on the in, length of the engine and I haven't 
been able to or haven't had the uh, need to really adjust any of the main fuel uh, any of the flows or any of that kind of stuff. I'll adjust the idle the idle settings, the idle mixture setting, and the idle speed setting. But that's pretty much put on whenever you put the new carburetor on, just like any other carburetor. So, now in order to ignite that fuel air mixture, we need an ignition source, right? So, this aircraft runs magnetos, which are such old technology. I can't believe that brand new airplanes are still being made with magnetos. Now, I'm not going to go into it and explain what a magneto is. There's plenty of YouTube videos out there that will will explain it way better than I am, but uh, without a visual, of course. So these magnetos are essentially spinning magnets, which create a field and collapse a field. And then when you collapse the field, that sends a, uh, it sends electricity, for the lack of words, down the harness to the spark plug, okay? So these magnetos, there's one on each side. One magneto, like for instance the magneto on the right, runs all of the spark plugs on the inside of the V. So we refer to that as the intake magneto. It runs all the plugs on the inside, so that's the intake. The left mag runs all of the plugs on the outside of the V. So we call those the exhaust mag. So Whenever we say, oh, I lost a left or a right, you won't hear Mustang guys say that. They'll be like, yeah, I, I, lost, a, I lost an exhaust mag, or oh, my, my intake mag's running, running rough. And I'll be honest with you, out of, out of all the engine issues I've had over the years, I've had more magneto issues, just because the company that's making the, the coils that, that help produce and collapse the, the field, for the lack of words, uh, have really just it's it's gone downhill uh i have some really good coils that i that i hold on to that whenever whenever they go bad i just swap them out but um so those those magnetos they're hard to come i mean they're hard to come by overhauled i should say because there's not very there's not a whole lot of places you're probably thinking to yourself well you know why don't why don't more people get into this well there's by the time you spool up for this and and tool up for it and put all that stuff i mean each mag is going to cost too much to even run these airplanes so right now we're in a we're in a vicious circle of there's not any places new that are that are overhauling these mags so we're having to having to rely on only a few places and generally all the places that uh overhaul the merlin like vintage v12s roush uh there's a couple other places uh they will generally do the mags themselves there's a company called savage that will do a few mags they mostly go on the uh, on the roush engines i run a company called uh, uh rotex not the not the engine but it's very similar to it rotex mags they uh they're in my opinion they're the superior mag but um so the spark plugs that we're running on these things, they're not just champions, they're not just Tempest, they're not, you know, your standard general aviation spark plug as you can as you can imagine. They are um, 14 millimeter, so they're the same size uh, as as car magnetos uh, diameter wise, but uh, they're a little bit more complex. There is an auto plug STC for the aircraft and I and I can't believe I can't believe this thing has lasted as long as it has but there's a there's an STC out there to put NGK plugs which yes NGK just like what you put in your Toyota Corolla they're putting these in Merlins and there's an auto harness that you can put on your mags now granted in my experience the NGK plugs don't last very long for somebody that flies the airplane as many hours as I do a year I wouldn't get the life I, I would be forever taxiing back and changing spark plugs now granted the spark plug costs go go from 180 dollars a plug to four dollars and 50 cents a plug but still i can't afford to lose a performance on a day changing a changing a plug um and trying to figure out which one it is and all that kind of jazz it just wouldn't it wouldn't uh 
it doesn't make sense to me. So what I do is I run the stock plugs that are in it with the stock harness and stock magnetos, and I've had really good success on it. Granted, I've had some issues. I've had two mag issues over the past uh, 15, two major mag issues over the past 15 years that have cost me to lose a, a day of performing. Um, one of the last air shows in Augusta, I had an issue with my left mag where actually the coil failed, and I was able to I was able to swap it out in a day and do the do the performance the next day. But if I wasn't at my home airport with my home um, uh, shop that's just up the road, it would have been incredibly difficult to to be able to do that. Now, that's that's the ignition system overall. We have a magneto switch that's in the cockpit, which means that we can select which mag we want to ground out to to check the the health of it. So you see, when we do run ups, you'll hear. Um, you hear them cycle the prop a couple times, then you hear the a slight uh, RPM change two or three times, uh, and that's that afterwards, and that's them checking the magnetos. They're switching from one mag to the next, just making sure the engine runs at at uh, around field barometric power. The issue with it is we stagger the timing on these magnetos. So the reason why we stagger the timing is because it actually it's it's two reasons. It, it actually gives you a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more horsepower. So we stagger the intake magneto, the right magneto, a little bit more advanced than we do the exhaust mag. So we set it at 42 degrees before top dead center. The right is set at 38. And the reason why we do that is if you think about that, if you can envision the cylinder, uh, the, the fire, it keeps the fire going out for the lack of words. It makes, it makes it burn from the, from the inside of the, or from the, um, from the intake side of the, cylinder to the exhaust so it's actually helping push that uh, burned fuel just very slightly pushing it out the exhaust pipe so the only difference with that is if you at high power settings if you lose a left mag if you lose an exhaust mag um, you will actually um, you'll lose the engine it, it actually will stop for a second till you can actually retard the throttle enough to get around field barometric power the right mag for some reason it's not it's not as uh it's not as it's not as volatile but um another little another little tidbit so uh going on to other things the rotables on this thing so like the starter the pumps all that kind of stuff we'll start with the fuel pumps there's two different kind of fuel pumps on this on this aircraft and we're just talking pretty much firewall forward but we're also talking systems so there's an engine driven fuel pump which is driven off of uh, the accessory or driven by the actual engine itself so as the engine rotates it's actually creating fuel pressure that's an engine driven fuel pump there's also fuel boost pumps in each one of the tanks and those are selected in the cockpit with my fuel selector so when i want to draw out of the left tank I just select the left tank, and then what that does is it turns on, if I have the boost pump switch on, it turns on the left boost pump. Now, granted, the stock setup for, for a D-model Mustang is that there's one fuel pump switch, and the um, fuel selector has a thing called a pancake wafer, a pancake switch underneath it. So when you select a tank, it also selects, if you have the fuel pump switch on, it selects whichever boost pump to run. So if I, am, if I have the fuel pump switch selected and I'm running off the left tank, the left boost pump is energized. Now, if I just leave that switch on and I rotate it over to the right, it's going to automatically turn on the right pump and deselect the left pump. Does that make sense? So, that's how the fuel. That's that's the fuel pumps. Now, the oil pump. There's two oil pumps on this on this aircraft. Uh, really, three, but we'll talk about the two oil pumps. There's an oil pump, then there's an oil scavenge. So, in order to pull the oil out of the bottom of the engine, you have to have a scavenge pump. And what that does is it pulls the in, it pulls the oil out of the out of the oil pan and back into the oil tank. Now it pumps at twice the rate of the 
uh, pressure because you don't want oil piling up in the bottom. Now, theoretically, theoretically, one would be, uh, what, let's say you set them at the same rate, they should be able to pump at the same rate. You would think that the scavenger pump would be able to keep up with it. Well, no, you have gravity, so there's also oil that's pooling down off of, off of the engine at the same time, so the scavenger pump has to pull that out. Now, there's a third one that we put on here called a pre-oil pump. Now, the pre-oil pump, what that does is it's literally just a, a, a propeller pump out of a... Uh, out of an old radial engine. And what it does is it delivers high pressure oil to, or higher pressure oil, I should say, before start to the top of the engine. Because as we shut this engine off, all of the oil on the top of the engine and on the cam drains off. So what we do is we pipe a, uh, a pump line into, we tap into the into the oil uh, oil line system, and we pressurize the engine with, with oil from the, from the oil tank. So that's a oil, and we just shut it off prior to prior to start. And the only time you use it is generally when it's cold. When it's hot, with it's within like six hours. I don't, I don't, I, even then. I usually, if it's the same day, I won't, I won't, uh, won't pre-oil. Um, hydraulic pump. There's a hydraulic pump that's located on the bottom of the engine. There's this aircraft only has one. It's a, uh, it's an engine-driven hydraulic pump. So the hydraulics are only energized when the engine is turning uh, or engine is running. Some aircraft have an auxiliary hydraulic pump and that auxiliary hydraulic pump is just activated by a switch so it's electrically operated, hydraulically actuated and um, you can, guys do that so they don't have to hook up a hydraulic mule to swing the gear. Uh, if they forget to put the flaps down they can energize the hydraulic system and put the flaps down. It's just, it's, I, we elected not to do it because it's actually more maintenance than it is useful to, to me because we run all, all of our maintenance out of here so we have a mule we have the tools there's no reason not to have that stuff so um getting to the difference of this engine than other engines as i said it's a water-cooled engine so now we got to talk about coolant so the coolant that we run in here the water glycol mix that we run in this air aircraft i am using a company called stay clean which is a uh it's a marine uh used for used for boats uh coolant and it it's does exactly what it is it actually has a uh, a mixture in it that helps discourage buildup of uh, any of the calcium that might be in your, your water. Now, granted, we cut it. It's usually between some guys run at 70-30, some guys run at 60-40, meaning 70% glycol, 30% distilled water. But still, there's going to be some particulate that, that will that will come out of that. It's just, just impurities and even in the distilled water or even in the uh, coolant. So Stay Clean, what it does is it leaves that stuff in suspension and doesn't let it build up on your coolant pump and have a coolant pump failure so the coolant pump is located at the bottom of the engine uh, that's where a lot of these pumps are located and it draws from a header tank now the header tank is the kidney shaped or half moon shaped tank that you see in the front of a lot of the uh, engines when the engines opened up um, the main purpose of a header tank is an expansion tank because whenever you heat fluids there's going to be an expansion of some rate. So what you're doing there is that's it acts like a metal balloon, believe it or not. And it's a horrible design because it's it's welded in two places, and the Spitfire is even worse because they decided to rivet it. So and it's a brass tank, if I remember right. So I mean, it's you know neither us or the Brits got this one right. But uh, so it's an expansion chamber for uh, it, it. Essentially, deaerates it gets any um, any air bubbles or any air pockets out of your coolant, so you can. Um, actually have maximum cooling to to the aircraft now i said there was a second coolant system in this aircraft that's the after coolant system that's to cool down the supercharged air and that's located in the back of the engine now these two systems are completely separate of each other the main system holds 16.4 gallons the uh 
after coolant systems, just above four and a half gallons, 4.6, I think is what the, was what the thing calls for. They're two different systems. You have to make sure both are serviced, but however, they both go through the radiator. So the, so two thirds of the radiator cools the main coolant system. And then one third of it cools the after coolant system. So the main radiator that you see in the scoop on the bottom of the aircraft, remember that's not where the airflow for the engine comes in. That's just for oil and for main coolant uh, heat exchanger cooling. That is where all that occurs. Now, the after-coolant pump is located on the left-hand side of the aircraft, or left-hand side of the engine, excuse me. Uh, ironically, just forward of the left mag, so you got to take off all the piping and all that crap if you got to pull the left mag. The left mag's a pain in the ass to get off. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I've had to do it like two times in the past four years. It is it is a gigantic pain in the empanage. So, um, But that's the coolant system. I, I do run uh, pH strips every once in a while, about every 100 hours. I just check the pH of it just to make sure that... Um, Stay Clean has a has a guide that says, hey, you need to keep it between this range. And uh, if it gets out of range, I'll either add, if and this this engine doesn't use any coolant. If it's using coolant, then you you have a major major issue. So I don't even service the coolant. I haven't. I don't remember the last time I actually added coolant, either main coolant or after coolant to to this engine. As a matter of fact, the old engine that we ran well over you know seventeen hundred hours. I think I added coolant to it once, and that was because when I bled the system, I spilled some. I believe that was the, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's it. Um, now, I was talking about that this engine's a stock is 1,495 horse. We're kicking about 1,700 out of this thing. And, the, and how you get that is we have the pistons in this in this engine are, are, are lighter weight, um, staggered timing. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of the things that really helps is it's, I want to call it blueprint and balanced. But what we mean by that is, you know, it's not uh, it's not a balanced, completely balanced engine, but there's a lot of chrome linings. Like our cylinders are chrome lined. The original ones were plain steel, and uh, what that does is it cuts down on oil consumption and it, it increases the life of your heads and banks. It makes your it just it's a it's a great addition. So that is something that was post war and actually more civilian put in was was a. Uh, Guys call it Sturmachrome, but it's it's just a chrome line cylinder, uh, and that does add add a little bit of add a little bit of power to it all. Um, some of the other aftermarket mods that that help this engine uh, go the life that we're getting out of it is in the oil system. The original oil filter was called a Kuno filter, and we take that off and we put a dual spin-on oil filter kit. So the Kuno filter, what it is, is it was a canister. Uh, that was, you never had to buy an oil filter ever. It was a canister and it was a bunch of stacked, uh, wafers, bronze brass wafers that had different holes in it that were, that were not exactly lined up. So as the oil flowed through them, it essentially what it caught was like dead animals. And if your engine was coming apart, it would just catch the big parts. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a very fine filter. So there was all these carbon bits and, uh, you know, if you had smaller pieces, finer shavings of metal, um, the, the oil system wouldn't uh, wouldn't keep the oil filter wouldn't keep up with that and it would just decrease the life of your engine. So uh, the dual spin on oil filter kit, in my opinion, is is one of the best mods for this engine. It helps. Keep, uh, I drain my oil now. I I go just below fifty hours with my oil. Um, you know, forty thirty five hours somewhere in that area. I don't quite go to fifty, but uh, when I drain my oil. It's clean. Now, I'm using a multi-grade oil. Now, some guys use straight 120 oil, 120W, I should say. I'm using a multi-grade, which is 25W60. So it's, um, and the difference is, I'm not going to go big into the differences, but the, the difference is that 
the multi-grade tends to stay uh, t- tends to stay a little bit a little bit waterier for the lack of words longer. So even when it's cold, I don't get these large spikes in, in oil pressure. Um, but it also, in my opinion, I think it helps keep the engine cleaner because even when we broke down my my uh, my old engine, started looking at the oil galleys and and the oil pathways, they were beautiful. They were clean, and I fully 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 blame it on the dual spin on oil filter kit now the oil filters that we're putting on are two 109 style not any 109 but they're called 109 style filters literally they're just beechcraft bonanza filters and yes they keep up with the oil flow and the oil pressure just fine um but the beautiful thing is is you know every 35 40 hours i spin them off i split them open if there's no anomalies i throw them away and put two new ones on i mean it's it's beautiful and it helps keep its dual fill it's really if you look at it overall even though the filters are more fine than the qno it's almost four times the filtration that a stock merlin had so that's uh that's a big plus it's a big win for the merlin community uh other than that like i said staggered timing um that it's really big because i used to run them both at 45 degrees before top dead center now we stack we lower it and stagger it which we found is actually better for it because we're not we're not going to 67 inches of manifold we're not going to war emergency that's that's something that's been taken out and nobody does that and you know the now the reno guys i'm not going to talk about the reno guys i might make an episode about about them later on but that that engine is a whole different animal than than a stock merlin they take that thing and they make it a friggin uh a grenade in my opinion but it's i mean they make just a just a hell of an engine out of it um why don't we go to electronic ignition that's and that's a good question i actually spoke with uh, and i'm going to throw them under the bus on this one both surefly and um I'm trying to think of the other company because surefly pissed me off the most i asked like hey we've got 150 some out of these airplanes plus p40s plus everything else i mean you know why don't you guys come up with the electronic ignition they're like only 150 nope it's not worth our time so uh, we're just going to be running mags for the foreseeable future. I know there's people that have been experimenting with electronic ignition. I wish we could go to it. I wish somebody would come up with it. I'd buy it in a heartbeat, but, uh, nobody has any interest. There's so little of these airplanes out there. Yeah. 150 is a lot, but keep in mind, it's only 1% of the aircraft that were ever built. There's 15,700 built. There's 156 flying. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just that, but that's the Merlin in a, in a, in a nutshell. Now, each one of the um, each one of the engine manufacturers has their prescribed uh, techniques. Now, there's there's different main like Roush, for instance. He has a roller cam, which means that the cams, instead of having uh, a finger on them, so the instead of having a finger that rolls, they have a they have a roller, and, and it decreases friction. And it's a good mod. You just got to keep up with it. It's just anything else. It, it's it's a good mod. I I choose to run stock cams with what's called merlin fingers in there so the fingers that actually depress down on the cam have a carbide insert put in them and what that does is it actually decreases the wear by i think they said like 80 percent uh my original cams that that i flew in that engine i told you i flew so much the reason why it lasted so long was we had merlin fingers and when we mic'd it out it was only like uh, 9% cam wear, so it was only 9%, the cam lobes were 9% smaller than when I flew it 1,700 hours ago. So that's, uh, it's compared to, I know guys that have ground cam lobes off, so there's, that's, that's a big difference. Um, and real quick, now we'll switch over to the, uh, to the R2800. It's not nearly as, as in-depth as, as the Merlin, and you're going to find that out. And plus it can, it can run with a lot, lot, lot more wrong with it, and we're going to get into that too. So, 
Brent Winnie, R2800, 2800 cubic inch. Now, the one that's on Korean War Hero is kicking out 2,000 horsepower, probably just a little bit over 2,000 horsepower, because it is a different dash number than the uh, than the stock engine that the that a lot of the Dash 4, keep in mind, it's an F4U Dash 4. So it's a end of end of World War II. Didn't see action in World War II, but they used them extensively in Korea. Uh, if you watch the movie Devotion, uh, those Corsairs are meant to depict Dash Four Corsairs. So it's same one that's uh, sitting here with us. That engine is a two-row, eighteen-cylinder. So two rows of nine cylinders that are slapping up front, and this engine was the most widely used engine in the Second World War is used in more Allied aircraft than, than just about, and for good reason, because it it's a it's a brick outhouse, folks. It can take so much, well, I don't want to say punishment, because we're not getting shot at here on the air show, circuit. at least I'm not. I haven't, I haven't done a show in Detroit in many, many years, but, uh, you know, we're not getting shot at, we're not taking battle damage, but at the same time, we are dealing with uh, uh, different mechanical issues and this engine can fly with more stuff wrong with it and just keep ticking and you won't discover it till till you do a maintenance inspection than I've ever seen any engine in my life and that's including like the the O360s and IO360s that are on Cessnas because those can fly with a lot wrong with them too but uh, yeah so it's two rows and nine now <clears throat> on radial engines the big thing to watch on that is oil consumption, obviously. Now, these cylinders that Korean War Hero has, they are chrome lines, so the oil consumption on them is, is drastically lower. Uh, we generally burn, with Korean War Hero, we burn just under a gallon of oil an hour, which is pretty doggone good for an R2800, because if you look at the guys that are flying Convairs and all that other kind of stuff, in, or, or uh, C-46s and that... They're burning two and three gallons an hour in, in, in cruise. So, you know, less than a gallon an hour, that's pretty doggone good. This engine's got right at 1,000 hours on it. So if you look at the front of an R2800, you'll see three bulbs. You'll three three little, like, nodules on the front of it. And in the middle, that is the magneto. So it's a single magneto that runs... Um, I say single magneto. It's a single point magneto. It's not two different magnetos. It's, it is two different magnetos. Excuse me. It's two different magnetos that are on the same shaft. Okay, that's that's being driven by the same point. Now, how they stagger their, or how they work their timing is one one magneto, uh, one magneto. The left magneto runs one set of plugs. The right magneto runs the other set of plugs. So one set runs the front plugs, the front side, the forward-facing side plugs. And the other one runs the rear plugs, which are on the back side of all the cylinders. So if you look at it like you're sitting in the cockpit, all the all the spark plugs that are pointing away from you, those are in the front. All the ones that are pointing at you are the ones in the back. So that's how they run the ignition system on it. It runs a, it runs a carburetor, the same as us. It's a pressure carburetor. We've already been over that. Uh, same thing. It mixes the mixes the fuel in the first stage. Now they call it the distributor wheel, but yes, it is a it is a supercharger. Now the engine that's in Korean War Hero is a CB series engine, which is a which is a later version uh, R2800. It's got the latest latest and greatest mods and bearings and, and all that kind of jazz in it. And uh, CB series was more for uh, bombers and and uh, transports, but it works just fine as a uh, in the fighter role as well, because you know an R twenty eight hundred is an R twenty eight hundred, really. But uh, so each one of the cylinders. Now the now the difference is like in a like in a Mustang. I'm not going to 
quote unquote lose a cylinder. I'm not going to blow a jug, as they call it, because those those each individual cylinder is in a bank. So it's a it's a billet of aluminum that six holes are drilled in. They put two on each side. There's your twelve cylinders. So in the Corsair, it's eighteen individual cylinders. So now you got to deal with that. Um, a lot of the R2800 issues are that they will lose cylinders. They'll you'll hear them call it. Oh, I blew a jug. So the top end or the head portion of the cylinder will separate. This airplane uh, recently has flown with uh, two non-firing cylinders. There was an ignition issue with it. And uh, two of the 18 cylinders decided to not fire in flight. And the only way that the gym knew that it was going on was when, when we were in cruise. He One, he felt a little vibration come on. And two, he's got an engine monitor. We don't have an engine monitor in the Mustang. It's really hard to really hard to hook one up. I actually came up with one years ago, but it was just such a pain in the ass that I took it out. But in the Corsair, it is, I, I in my opinion, it's a no-go item, really, because you can actually look and see which cylinders are not firing or which ones are cold or which ones are not firing as well. So we landed and found out that um, two of the cylinders, so... For the lack of words, this is this is a more complex ignition system than the Mustang because each one of the magnetos are what's called low tension. So they fire low voltage. They don't fire as high voltage as, as magnetos on a Mustang or a, or a P40 or any of that stuff. So they fire at low voltage, and what happens is as as that amps as those amps travel down the the wiring harness they then go to a transformer that is on each one of the each one of the cylinders and that transformer ramps them up to a higher voltage and that voltage is then once it reaches the desired voltage level is then uh delivered to both of those uh both of those plugs now when those transformers decide to stop firing you decide you actually lose both plugs in the cylinder now you would think wow well, wouldn't that be more uh more vibrations well it is it is but the difference in vibration according to jim the difference in vibration you couldn't tell at high power but when you got down to low power you could actually tell that there was there was a a little more of a vibration but in high cruise he virtually couldn't even tell so um the stories you hear about the p47s getting you know the lower four cylinder shot off and still getting back i completely totally one hundred and ten thousand percent believe that they probably could have kept on doing the daggone mission if they wanted to because this i mean as long as there's oil in the engine um yeah this is this is just an absolute bulletproof engine so we went over that went over that uh there's no it's cooled by air so it's air so the airflow through the front of the uh the front of the uh engine goes across the cylinders and there's cooling fins and that acts as like a heat exchanger to draw the heat away from the uh the heads and the cylinders it's then exhausted out of the back of the cowling you'll see on on all corsairs p47s uh, any the hellcats any of the aircraft that have these style air uh, engines you'll see these like slat looking uh doors or gills on the back of the engine those are called cow flaps and when they're on the ground, they're open. Generally, when they're in flight, they're closed. And that's just a just a constraint. It actually slows you down a bunch too. But it's just to keep that airflow over top of the over top of the engine and keep it keep it happy and keep it uh, at the right temperature. Kind of like the uh, coolant door on on the fifty one, how it opens and closes to regulate temperature. Those those cow flaps will regulate temperature of the. It will help regulate temperature. Excuse me of your engine, but. Uh, Primarily, like I said, in the air, 99 times. I can't even think of a time, really, we would open them up in the air, except if it was just getting really, really hot. So uh, they're, act, they're 
hydraulically operated. The cow flaps are hydraulically operated, so as long as there's hydraulic pressure on the uh, on the system, they will open and close with a switch in the cockpit. Uh, speaking of hydraulics, there's a hydraulic pump at the bottom. Uh, excuse me, at the bottom of the accessory section on the back of the engine, so that runs all of the uh, the flaps, the landing gear. Uh, supplies pressure to the brakes as well as the cow flaps now the korean war hero has an auxiliary hydraulic pump like we were talking about in the 51 and that is used oh it also folds the wings excuse me duh i forgot about that um that will that will drive the flaps the auxiliary hydraulic pump you can swing the gear with it you can fold and unfold the wings problem with it is it's a very high draw or very high amp pump so you got to have a really strong battery or you have to have just just shut down and have like a really large top off on your uh, on your electrical system to to let that go. So and that's pretty much all the pumps that that are that are on the back of that. So yeah, you've got the ignition, you got the hydraulic, you got the oil pump, big oil, big old oil pump that's on the on the and, and scavenge pump that are in this engine. Um, oil capacity, the tank capacity itself is 27 gallons. The whole engine itself holds like 36. Uh, as compared to the Mustang, which has a 12-gallon tank and holds the whole entire system holds about uh, right at 17 gallons. Uh, no, excuse me, 23 gallons. So, um, big engine, big oil system. Uh, its oil pressure is generally around the 100 psi mark. It's it's pretty high pressure that's inside inside the engine and inside the case, cooling off all that stuff. But um, that's literally that's how simple the R2800 is. There's not a whole lot more to go into it. That's it versus the Merlin. So. With that having been said, folks, I am going to conclude this. We're coming up on 40-some-odd uh, minutes of this. So my promise to you is that in the next uh, next coming months, we're going to get a get a video platform with some cuts and a little bit more uh, a little bit more visuals. Probably do a part two on this so I can actually, once again, go over this stuff, and we'll, we'll revisit a lot of these things so you can actually visualize it. Uh, once again, follow us on uh, Quicksilver P51's Instagram page, Facebook. Reach out to us at uh, airpowerpodcast at gmail.com if you guys have any questions or uh, want to see anything, hear anything, that kind of jazz. So uh, look forward to talking to you guys again. See ya.